Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion. On this podcast, we learn about recent discoveries of species that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We ask scientists how they found these new species and why they matter. We learn about what makes a new species and hear some behind the scenes stories along the way. So join us as we explore the biodiversity of our planet and the scientists who help us better understand it. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Albion, and I'm here with Dr. Maria Haranz, researcher at the Department of Biology at the University of Copenhagen. She's here today to tell me about her paper in Volume 302 of Zoologister und Sieger, in which she and her co-authors describe a new species of marine invertebrate from the Chuuk Islands in Micronesia. Welcome, Maria. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Thanks for inviting me. So we're talking about organisms in the phylum Kinorinca uh, within the class Cycloragida. And I think in a lot of cases, the animals that we talk about, we can immediately jump in at the family or sometimes even the genus level because they're pretty familiar to most people. Uh, and their groups really aren't as diverse as what we're talking about here. But these marine worms, they're, they're completely unknown to most, uh, even many taxonomists. But they're incredibly diverse and they're different enough to have their own phylum. So Maria, I'll admit I have very little context for these organisms. Are they animalia? Where do they sit on the tree of life? Yes, indeed. Uh, Madragons or kinorings are an animal phylum of marine invertebrates, and they are part of a group called the ecdysozoans. And these are animals that molt, and this is a process called ecdysis, and that's why they're called ecdysozoans. And so they shed their cuticle or their exoskeleton to grow, such as arthropods do, like insects, for instance. And within this group of ecdysozoans, um, the mud dragons are part of a very, very understudied group named Scalidophorans, which are animals with spiky radial heads. That means that they have uh, the symmetry around the central axis. And they are together uh, clustering with two other really weird groups called priapolids and lorisifrans. But we're going to focus about the mud dragons here. But just for give you a little piece of information, these animals have fossil records dating from the Cambrian period, which is like 535 million years old. So they are really, uh, they've been around for a long time. That's really impressive. And why are they called mud dragons? Oh, this is a good question. Um, because they don't really resemble a one-to-one one to a dragon. So they have these spiny cover heads that are retractable. So imagine a turtle that can put the full head inside the trunk. Uh, they can do the same. And they also have spines along their bodies. And sometimes they have scale-like structures. So with a bit of imagination, uh, they can look like tiny dragons without limbs. So in <laughs> fact, in order to move, they pull themselves along the ocean bottom with their spines by moving their head in and out, out of the body. Um, so I guess Mad Dragon was an attractive name, and everyone loved it, so we use it all the time. I think it came from a Japanese researcher some years ago, and we just stuck to that. And can you talk a little bit about the different groups of Mad Dragons and where yours, the Echinoderes genus, fits in? Yeah, so uh, this is going to be a bit of a tongue twister, but I'm going to do my best uh, to break it in uh, understandable pieces. So. The mud dragons are a phylum and they are divided into two main groups or classes. Uh, one is the Cycloragida and another one is called Alomaloragida. 
So we stay in the Cycloragida, which are the ones that have uh, more number of species. And within Cycloragida, there are three orders. One of them is called Echinoragada, and that one contains the family Echinoderidae. <laughs> and within this family, we have the genus Echinoderidae. So there are a lot of steps, taxonomically speaking. And this within this genus is our new species belongs to. And it seems complicated, but the important thing here is that this genus Echinoderis is the most species rich and it contains uh, more than two thirds of the kinoric diversity, which is 160 species out of 300 total species of the phylum. So pretty diverse. Wow. That's amazing. And it sounds like so much of this research has been really recent, like within the past decade. Yeah. In the last 10 years, we have described around 160 new species in the whole phylum. And this is because we're, we're a small group. We are um, around 10 to 12 people actively researching on them all over the world. And, but we, we are very active. We have a bunch of new young members that are quite um, active too. And yeah, so, so we are increasing the numbers quite steeply these days. How did you get into studying marine invertebrates in the first place? And, and how did you find your way to these mud dragons? Yeah, that's another good question. Um, I've always been fascinated about marine invertebrates and their diversity. And I knew I wanted to do research. So when I finished grad school, I was studying biology and specialized in zoology. I started my PhD uh, and I was in the University of Madrid and I wanted to do marine invertebrates. But as, as you might uh, <laughs> think, Madrid is far from the sea. And uh, <laughs> there was only one team doing marine invertebrates. And guess what they were doing? <laughs> they were studying mud dragons. And then uh, I asked them uh, if it was possible to study something else or it was just that. And they said I should try and then decide afterwards. And I realized uh, they were very cool. And there was so much to discover that I got completely hooked. And here <laughs> I am after more than 12 years of research. I'm still working with them. Wow, that's really amazing. <laughs> um, so now I want to ask, where are they found and, and how are they actually found? Yeah, so they are only marine. But the, uh, the distribution is cosmopolitan. That means that uh, they are everywhere, pretty much, from the seashore to deep sea. So they have even been found as deep as 9,500 meters in marine trenches where there is high pressure and the, it's, the conditions are quite different from the seashore. So they can handle a lot of different uh, habitats. And if you're walking on the beach, you will never be able to, to tell if you have found them or not or any other part because they are tiny. So you cannot see them with your naked eye unless you carry a microscope with you. There's something so captivating about the creature that is everywhere, all around, and yet... We know so little about it. That seems to me like such an exciting opportunity. Yeah, and they are not the only ones. I mean, they are part of a whole group that is called myofauna, and it gathers tiny animals that are between one millimeter and 45 or 50 uh, micrometers. And this group is also called myobenthos because they are always linked to the sediment or the bottom of, of the oceans. There can be also fresh water, uh, but this community of animals is mega diverse and it has representatives of 24 out of 32 animal phyla so imagine 
there are tiny versions of most of the invertebrates uh, that you know uh, in the bottom of the oceans. That's amazing. And so they're in the bottom of the oceans, sometimes they're in these really deep marine trenches. What does field work look like? How do you actually collect these invertebrates? So, I mean, there are many different ways of collecting them. It depends where you are doing your collections. So um, it, it could be from the shore. So if you if it's shallow, you go to the shore and then you just walk out in a beach or in a mud flat and, and you, you go on foot and you will usually go at low tide and collect the sediment. If it's more than two, three meters uh, deep, we can scuba dive until 30 meters, especially if it's warm waters. That's nice. Um, if not, we can use a dredge from a boat, uh, which can reach much deeper sediments. And that includes also uh, for deep deep sea campaigns, they have special devices, cores and special dredges to get uh, sediment from deep down. And if it's shallow and muddy, we just take the very surface of the sediment that is the most oxygenating part and has more animals. And to do so, we use uh, shovels or dustpans and buckets. So it is quite low-tech equipment we use. But it works, whatever works. And if it's a sandy beach, we find the high tide mark and we can dig holes of half a meter or a deeper, oh, a meter deep until we start getting interstitial water filling the hole. And then we can collect the water and the sand uh, around and we can put all these in buckets. And... If we are uh, collecting from a boat, we use this dredge and the dredge is a sledge-like kind of apparatus which has metal frames and is lined with fine mesh, usually has like 50 microns um, or 60 microns depending. And we drop it from the boat until it, touch, it touches the bottom and after that we move the boat forward. So we just um, collect the upper layer of this sediment in the, in the dredge. So the mesh within the dredge traps the sediment with the animals and let the water go through. So all you get in the end is sediment with animals. And you might ask, how do we get the animals out of the sediment? Because they are tiny, right? So what we do is uh, once we have all the animals from the sediment, no matter what kind, if it's muddy or more coarse, um, we need, uh, we use a special technique that is called the bubble and blood. It's very ingenious and very straightforward. And so the mud dragons and many other myofaunal animals have this hydrophobic cuticle. That means um, that it repels water. So in order to separate them from the sand or, or the mud, uh, we create turbulence and bubbles in, uh, we produce that turbulence and bubbles and in, included in our samples. By mixing the sediment with seawater, we get a soupy consistency, and then we dump the whole content from one bucket to an empty one back and forth. So we just create a lot of these turbulence and tiny bubbles. And these bubbles would separate the sediment grains, trap the animals, and bring them to the surface. Once in the surface, the animals get trapped completely in the surface tension, so they cannot escape. It is a really strong uh, force for them. Uh, to escape that so they cannot do it they're pretty helpless and trapped there so now we want to get the animals from the surface to our mesh and what we use is a piece of copy paper regular copy paper so we <laughs> deposit it on top of the surface and then we remove it so the animals get transferred to the surface of the water to the paper and then we wash this paper on top of a mesh 
And from the mesh, is the mesh is around 60 microns. And then from the mesh, uh, they are conical meshes. They, they actually are called uh, uh, mermaid bras. <laughs> and because it's like a metal frame with a cone shape. So you just have to picture Madonna in the early 90s and then you, you might understand. <laughs> yeah. And then from the mesh, we can um, transfer them to a, to a Petri dish or a tube to bring into the lab, and then we can look at them under the microscope and separate them. And then something else we use is a specific tool called a loop. So the loop is a, a wire that is twisted and it has a hook in the end and it has a handle. And then what we do is to transfer them, like lassoing them with this hoop and transferring them from liquid to liquid. So the hoop contains a drop of water and the animal gets inside that drop of water. And of course, when you submerge the loop, the drop of water breaks the surface tension and the animal is released. I will never complain about sorting through pitfall samples again. I can't believe how intense your collecting is. And you must do at least uh, a few of those first steps at your site. D does anybody ever ask you what you're doing when you're collecting or sorting? Yeah, all the time. All the time. It's like what are you searching for? And they just look really interested to our mud. And it's like, well, actually, they're <laughs> tiny animals. You cannot see them. Oh, but are they there? Well, we actually don't know. We just collect <laughs> and check afterwards. So they get quite amazed about it, but quite disappointed because they cannot really see anything. It's like, can you see this speck floating? Maybe that's one animal. You know they're there and, well, they might be there. You know they might be there, which is the exciting part. Exactly. You never know. You do oh, all wow. the effort and then you hope they are there. But sometimes one has some intuition where they can be more likely to be or not. So, yeah, we usually find them, especially if it's mud. It's more difficult to work with, but it's usually uh, the, the likely place to find them. And what, what do they do in that mud? What is their sort of ecological role? Uh, yeah, that's a good question because we don't exactly know what they do, but because they are part of this large community of animals, this myofauna, they as well contribute to recycle the organic matter that deposits on the seafloor, all this uh, sea snow. And, and then uh, they are eaten by other larger animals and so on. So they contribute that way in the food chain. Uh, but they are not predators. They eat either bacteria or algae or or simply they eat the triders from the surroundings. So we don't really know exactly what they eat and what is the, their specific function, but um, they are just part of all this community and, and contribute to the food chain this way. Yeah, and hopefully you'll get to learn more. Definitely. You have to take these uh, very carefully collected samples back to the lab and examine them. So what is the process of that and how do you know that you found a new species? Yeah, so what we do is to take them to the lab. We start um, taking, uh, sieving through the samples and, and looking at, um, visually looking at the animals that are there. We separate them into categories as if we can see roughly at the beginning because we use a low uh, magnification stereo microscope. And then once we have them classified by Morphous species, what we think they look the same, we start um, using a higher magnification. And what we use are external diagnostic characters. So to map them, we use light microscopy and scanning electron microscopy usually. 
And these characters we look at are the number of spines, the tubes, they have glands, they have sensory organs that look like rosettes. And also we look at their position. So we have to map every single spine, every single gland or tube or every single tiny structure that we see. And we also take measurements of the segments and spines at certain proportions that also help us. And this particular species is uh, unique because it has some unpaired structures. And this is quite uncommon because usually the structures that we look at are bilaterally symmetric. But these species have some uh, that are not symmetric. So uh, this was very easy to, to spot and is unique among the rest. In this paper, you're sort of focusing on one particular group? Yeah. So as I mentioned before, these uh, echinoderes are, is, is a very large group. And it's a bit of a mess because um, um, phylogenetically, uh, using molecular tools is going to be divided in certain groups, but we don't have that information yet because we don't have enough sampling, uh, including molecular data. We're working on it. So, But we are seeing certain groups that are um, sharing certain conditions and certain uh, characteristics, and we are naming them. So in the future, we want to do some uh, molecular studies so, to verify that these are really individually um, or independent groups. And this is one of them, and it belongs to a group that is called Echinoderus culi group, uh, because Echinoderus culi was the first species uh, described with these characteristics. So these ones are quite interesting because they have a, a very broad salinity tolerance. Uh, meaning that they can live in both marine water, but also they can go into brackish areas. And these animals are not present in freshwater. They're exclusively marine. So um, this is a kind of ad adaptation. And in order to tolerate this um, difference of salinity, they have a specific adaptation of their nephridia, which is the equivalent of our kidneys. Um, and they control osmolarity and the concentration or the concentration of solids in water. So they can control for these uh, changes of salinity. And that's very particular. So they have some enlarged nephridia openings and they also are a bit chubby and hairy and with very, very small spines. Um, or sometimes they even have an absence of them. So, yeah, they're pretty particular. They sound very cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you named your new species Kinoderis inequalis. Uh, what was the choice behind that? So actually, I was not the one naming the species. This was the idea of our master student uh, and co-author. Uh, his name is Alexis. And he was working with the animals at the beginning. And, and he decided to name it inequalis because the name um, is, is from the Latin and means unequal. And it refers to this asymmetric distribution of the structures uh, that, that makes these species uh, unique. Uh, but we have other funny names there. <laughs> it's been recently published. Uh, we have names um, after Game of Thrones characters or Lord of the Rings or Greek gods. So we have a lot of uh, <laughs> fantastic dragon names out, out there. This one seems a bit more serious, but this was the choice of our student. I'm sure that'll be really helpful to people identifying the specimens in the future to have inequalis, that very visual characteristic, be their name. Exactly. Yeah. Always helps. And why is it so important to continue to study these creatures? And why does biodiversity discovery matter? 
So in an era where we're losing so much diversity, it is so important to catalog it as fast as possible to conserve it and create awareness. So taxonomists work is very important because we are the foundation of many other studies. And also it's important to create more complete databases without them, uh, the work of other scientists is just very difficult. So we are at the base of the knowledge chain, but uh, unfortunately our job is not very well funded nowadays and taxonomists are disappearing um, because it also takes a long time to, to learn the techniques and understand the animals. So uh, this is a big challenge we have ahead of us and we have to create awareness of how important taxonomy is. Uh, so my discovery chips in the large picture and contributes to know a little bit more about these wonderful creatures. Definitely. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about them. I certainly didn't know about mud dragons before this conversation. So thanks I'm, for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning more. I'm sure many other people uh, are as well. I'm crossing fingers. Maria Haran's paper, Expanding the Echinoderis Kulai Group, Echinorhynchia cycloragida, with a new species from the Chuuk Islands Micronesia, is in Volume 302 of Zoologie Strandsieger. See the episode details for an open access link to the paper, and to learn more about Maria and her work, you can check out her website, mariaharansm.com, or you can follow her on Twitter, at mariaharans underscore. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Species Podcast. This podcast was created by Brian Patrick and is edited and produced by Zoe Albion. If you would like to support us, please consider subscribing to our Patreon at patreon.com slash newspeciespodcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with questions or feedback, please email us at newspeciespodcast at gmail.com. I love how you... You were like, is there anything else I can study? And they were like, no. And then you dedicated 12 plus years of your life to. <laughs> yeah, it's by chance. A lot of things are by, by chance because, I mean, one is never excited about studying a tiny creature that no one knows about. I was really interested in studying jellyfish. I was like, oh, I really like them, these pelagic animals, and they are so elegant. And then I asked, and they said, well, we don't do this here. We do mud dragons. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'll try.